Amen. Um, the good news, part three. The good news, part three. And you might say, subtitle to that, the threefold message. The threefold message of the good news. Isaiah 40, uh, verses 9 through 11. And we'll pick up at the end of verse 9. And I was thinking, because I'm teaching next week, um, or I'm out of town for a little bit, then back again, um, that perhaps I would just um, have finished, go to verse 10 and come back in 11 next week. But I just thought it would be great to finish this section and I'm going to briefly introduce where we'll go from there. Um, one thing that came out um, from the message yesterday was an absolute need to trust. And this passage um, encourages that. It is calling Judah to trust God despite their circumstances. Yes, um, you are people who have been taken away by Babylon. Um, many are wondering whether or not they would ever return again to their homeland. Um, the land, in many ways, is decimated. And the question is, where is God? Where is Yahweh? Um, will he come to our aid? Has he forsaken us? Has he forgotten us? What about the covenant that Yahweh has made with us? They must realize that they have violated the covenant. Uh, all fault is always on the side of man. Do we agree with that? It is never on the side of God. And so God has made a covenant with his people, Yahweh, by the, the very nature of his name itself. He is this all-sufficient covenant-keeping God. And so Judah has failed. And when we think about the indictment against Judah, they have failed in view of looking at their northern brothers, Israel, failing and being carried away by the Assyrians. And one would think that they'd learn. But that's human nature in its sinfulness, isn't it? Um, you see another person make a mistake, and you think that somehow you won't pay the consequences that that other person paid. And we see it all the time. You see it in people that are in front of us. And when I say in front of us, uh, people that are noted, we see it in politicians. You say to yourself, you saw that other person indicted on similar crimes. Why did you think you would get away with it? You see it in an athlete that decides he's going to use a certain drug um, to enhance his performance. Why did you think you would get away with it? Uh, what were you thinking? And are when it comes to inappropriate relationships that we have seen, um, whether it be celebrities or politicians or athletes or just pastors as well, or just the everyday person, why did you think you could continue in this relationship and no one ever discover it? So we don't learn. Um, from mistakes. And, and maybe you say, well, I've never done anything like that, impropriety in a relationship or, or funds or an abuse of power. Um, but I think we would all say, if we were to be honest, we have seen other people make decisions or go down a certain path and we haven't learned from it, have we? Um, and that's the nature of men. And here's Judah. You would think they would have learned from their brothers up north, but they didn't learn. And they find themselves taken away by the mighty Babylon. But God says, trust me, I will come to you again. Well, when will you come? Um, how are you going to come? And the text is telling us that, that God, in fact, is someone to be trusted. And when we ask the question, um, why is trust important? Trust is important for any relationship, isn't it? 
as I had um, illustrated last week, when it comes to marriage, trust is absolutely necessary in marriage. It's, it's necessary in any covenant because you're saying to that person, in part, I entrust myself to you. Will you take care of me? And the other person is saying, I entrust myself to you as well. Will you watch out for me? Will you be there for me? And this is why the scripture even tells us that there is a friend closer than a what? Than a brother. And so we are to be that to each other, building trustworthy relationships. And God is a God that can be trusted. How is it developed? Well, in part, it's developed through a track record, a resume. Um, It is... It happens from time to time. I, I know it does. And in certain cultures, it's still the norm for them uh, where they arrange marriages. You've never met the person. We obviously see it in the Bible as well. Um, you will be married and you don't know the person. But the norm is to do what you meet someone. Um, you spend time with them. Do you not? You get to know them and you establish what? Trust. You're a trustworthy person. I am right now. I have... Um, uh, a great niece who is going to be married in April and will be, at a, and I'm going to officiate uh, the wedding. She said she had always dreamed of me officiating the wedding, and she thought that maybe I could down the aisle as well. That would have been cool, too, to do both, to walk her down and then turn around and say, uh, dearly beloved, we are gathered here today. And who gives away I do, and who's officiating I will. That would be pretty cool. So we, I know I'm appreciating. We haven't worked out the walking down the aisle yet. Um, but one thing that I did as we have been Zooming together with her fiance, Williams Ambrose. So pray for Williams Ambrose and my, my niece Kendra. Um, I had to put him to the task. Yes, indeed. <laughs> so, uh, you know, young man, tell me about yourself. Who are you? What are you trying to do in life? How will you get there in life? Tell me about the Lord. When do you come to Christ? How do you serve Christ? What are you going to do under these circumstances? And uh, I, you know, we went, I took him through the ringer. Um, and so then I also had a session just with him. So I said, I have some man-to-man questions for you. And let me ask you about several things that we need to ask each other as men. And we walked through it as well. And so I'm still going to officiate. <laughs> now, trust me, had answers been given differently, and I told my great niece that as well, I said, I won't marry you. I won't participate in that because I don't know that you can trust him. And he needs to be able to trust you as well. That's going to be the foundation of this relationship is trust. And so I asked, okay, tell me about your life. Okay, you seem to have a resume of trustworthiness, and hopefully that's going to find itself in your marriage as well. So I, 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 that part of me comes out naturally. And there are even you know, young ladies um, that are at Grace Church, and I'm not related to them by blood, but I've, I've approached several and said, I've noticed that you're sitting with such on a consistent basis. What's happening here? <laughs> and I've said this to the guy. I've noticed that you've been sitting with her on a consistent basis. Is anything going on here? And at times I've then pulled him aside and said, tell me about your life. Well, I've been at Grace Church for 15 years. That's not your life. I know people that have been here for 15 years and don't know the Lord. So we go further because I want to say he's trustworthy. Do you agree with that? 
So if we say uh, one has to have a resume that says there's consistency, therefore I can trust you, we look at God and he has a spiritual resume that is impeccable. Do we agree with that? A faithful God. And the scripture tells us what? Great is thy what? And his mercies are new when? Every morning they are new. We see God's resume continue to be built and built and built more and more. There is a um, unblemished track record with the living God. So in this passage, really, the first part of Isaiah 40, and we remember it's divided into three parts. 1 through 11 is this message of comfort, and we're bringing it to an end. And then 12 to 26 is this idea, here is God and who he is and his great strength. And then we look at 27 to 31, that we can in fact rest in this God of great strength who has given us this wonderful promise. And so when we think about this passage, uh, we're seeking to answer some basic questions. And I, and I give them to you again. What are the basic questions? Who is proclaiming the good news? And we've, we've resolved that. At times, there is a voice speaking. We aren't certain who that voice is. But it is clear um, in verses 9 through 11, the, the voice is now we see Zion, Judah, The people of God are to speak else and say, be encouraged. God's promises will, in fact, come true. He will bring comfort to us. And so also there is a second question. How do we proclaim this news is what we looked at last week. And we'll review that in a moment. The text tells us clearly, how do we do it? Um, On a high mountain, get yourself. Lift up your voice mightily. Do not fear is how we should proclaim this message. A sense of boldness and a sense of assurance we should have in the message and they should have had in that message of God's promises. And now we come to this third question that we need to ask. What is the nature of the good news itself? What is the content of the message? So um, first was the idea, the voice is speaking, the messengers, and then how the messengers should proclaim it. And now what are they to say? What is the message itself? What is the content? And so we've come to the what. And as I've said in Isaiah 40, uh, Judah is in need of good news. So despite their covenant treachery, God is a faithful God to himself. And this is why, as we considered even several months ago, when God established, when he ratified the covenant, even through um, the relationship to, to Abram, and remember the picture, and it's always worth repeating again. You may have heard it many, many times before, but certain things just don't grow old. When Abram established uh, God established a covenant with Abram, and he tore asunder the, the animal parts, and then he split them, and he put them on either side, and then God walked between them through that sort of flame of fire. And why did God walk between them? Because in the culture, it was customary that one might ratify a covenant. And here are the animals, and they're torn asunder. And what normally would happen is that the two parties would walk through them together. And essentially saying, if I ever violate this covenant, may I be like these animals, torn asunder. And so God puts Abram to sleep and he walks through alone. And it's obvious, why does he walk through alone? Because only God can keep the what? Covenant. His people will do what? Fail. And this is what we see in Isaiah 40. The northern tribes have failed. Judah has failed, but God will not do what? Fail. Because he is a covenant-keeping God. He is absolutely impeccable in his word. 
God cannot lie. And not only is it true that he cannot lie, then God cannot fail. There may be people that have integrity, but if you don't have the power to enact the integrity, it does you no good. And what I mean by that is uh, we could say, well, God is an impeccable God. Um, It is impossible for him to lie, but he doesn't have the power to do it. No, they're an honest person, but they can't act on what they have pledged. They have no ability. But God, especially when we consider verses 12 to 26, we will see that, in fact, God is an impeccable God, but he's a capable God because he's an all-powerful God. And so as we look around, even in the circumstances um, today, we realize that nothing is beyond God's sovereign reach in hand, and that should be a comfort to us all. Amen? Nothing that happens in your life is beyond your heavenly Father. So here he is. God is bringing hope. I'm going to bring deliverance. Be encouraged. He is going to answer the exiles. Be encouraged. He is able to deliver the exiles. Be encouraged. So we take that idea about God and who he is in reference to Judah, and we say it is the same God that we serve today. This is not just a history lesson. And that's unfortunate that sometimes preachers may look at a narrative and it's simply a history lecture. Uh, It is more than that. This is a testimony of God's great resume that says for us in the New Testament here today in 2022, God is to be trusted today, is he not? Because he was trustworthy then, nothing changes in God. And so the overall um, outline of this passage has been, first, the messenger of the good news, and we've determined that already. Um, It is a statement when we think about it, man must understand he will not succeed until there is divine intervention. Do we agree with that? Man may try, but there will never be success unless there's divine intervention. We see divine intervention throughout the word of God, do we not? I mean, really, divine intervention began uh, with the creation of the universe itself. Uh, There was darkness, but this spoke and then there was what? Light. We think about our spiritual lives. We were dead in our transgressions and sins, our trespasses and sins, but then God made us alive according to his great love and his grace towards us. There's always been intervention. There'll always be intervention. And without it, men will fail. And of course, the, the manner of this good news is that we speak on that high mountain, that place of authority and visibility, a sense of presence that must be there. We're to do it mightily, the scripture tells us, or with strength, or with power. And the reason we do it with power is because we believe the message. If you don't believe the message, you may shrink back from the message itself. I'm not sure if I'm convinced of it. Therefore, I cannot speak with the same sense of authority. Every time I come here, every morning or wherever I may preach, I want to raise my voice mightily. And it's not necessarily in the volume, the volume truly. Um, It's in the sense of confidence that I have in the word of God. I don't shrink from anything that is in the word of God. And you should not shrink either. Do you agree? Don't be intimidated by the world. The world wants us to shrink back, does it not? The world doesn't want us to lift our voice mightily with a sense of confidence. I was talking to just yesterday with someone about um, pastoral ministry, and they're considering someone to go to their church, and they're asking our input from Grace Advance, and and they said that the person just didn't uh, seem like this is what he wanted to do, and he he didn't have that sense of this is God's calling. I said, he may not be the man for the job. 
Because there is a sense when all of us have to have uh, a sense of humility. We know that we are only by the what? The grace of God. But yet at the same time, if God has called you to a mission, and if you're preaching the word of God, you have to, as Paul said, you have to speak it boldly with great deal of confidence. Speak for the Lord. And sometimes we may find ourselves wrapped up in a false sense of humility. And it's not really humility. It's actually a sense of pridefulness because you're looking to yourself too much and not depending on the Lord. So there is the sense in where we should not fear. God has put forth an undeniable track record of watching out for his people, and this is no different. The circumstances may seem bleak, but in sense, in one sense, that's when God shines the greatest, when we find ourselves facing the greatest needs in life. So we ought to be like Paul said in Romans 1.16, not ashamed of the gospel. We should be like Paul in Ephesians 6.20, and we should pray, as Paul said, pray for me that I would speak boldly as I ought to speak. I'm obligated to speak with. Now, um, let's consider this. The message of the good news. Um, I want to give you the full outline. We've talked about the manner of the message, which we're going to look at in a moment. But here's a complete outline that you see before us. And we can go ahead to the next thing there. Um, And this is it. The message of the good news. And it is this. It, It breaks into three parts. And naturally three parts, because I want you to see what three words do you see um, in each division? What word do you see? Behold. And so the the outline is just right there for you. Now, you'll notice I have um, uh, the first part, behold, bracketed, because the NASB doesn't translate it. It simply says, here is your God. Um, uh, the ESV in the New King James does translate it, and I think that's the best way to do it. It is simply saying, behold, God. Um, some will say, see, here is your God. So first, is this the good news of God's presence? So what is the good news for Judah? Are people exiled? Are people that are wondering, have we been forsaken? The good news is God's presence. Behold your God. And then the good news of God's power. Behold what? This God is going to come with might and he's going to come with a ruling arm. Then third, behold, what is this good news for them? Behold, the news of God's promise. Behold, he's going to have a reward with him and a recompense is going to be before him and he will come like a shepherd. So behold, 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 be encouraged. The faithful God is still on our side. He has not utterly forsaken us, although in one sense we deserve it. But he must keep an unstained resume. So let's dive into it. First, the message of the good news. Um, What is the message? The good news of God's presence. And he says here, here is your God and behold your God. As I said already, the ESV and the New King James translates it that way. So it's important to grasp here this element of the gospel because it is a good news. We've established that already. Salvation starts with the very presence of God. And this is what the writer says. Here is your God. God has promised that he would come again. He has been distant from us. We have been taken away. But a promise is, in fact, going to be kept. You will see that presence again. Now, let's look at 
Isaiah 40, and then, if you will, pay attention to verses 3 to 5, because the promise was made there. Uh, the voice speaking for God us earlier, there's going to be a fulfillment of, in verses 3 to 5. A voice is calling, clear the way for the Lord in the wilderness. Make smooth in the desert a highway for our God. Let every valley be lifted up and every mountain and hill be made low. The rough ground become a plain, the rugged terrain a broad valley. Then the glory of Yahweh will be revealed and all flesh will see it together. For the mouth of Yahweh has spoken. So in anticipation that that glory would come. And what would that glory be? The presence of God would visit the people of God again. And how do we know it's true? Notice how verse 5 ends. It says, the mouth of Yahweh has spoken. Therefore, if he has spoken, we can rest in it. It goes back to the idea of trust. Uh, there are people that you can't trust them because they don't keep their what? They don't keep their word. Your word will say to a person, your word, nothing. Uh, your words are idle. Your words are like the wind because you say things and you don't mean it. Or you say things and it's really not your intention to act on them. You say things because you think in the, the circumstances somehow that's going to afford you some distance or it's going to afford you some favor, but it's really not coming from a heart of integrity. So they anticipated to see the glory of God. In a sense, uh, this is a thought that we find in Titus 2.11. Let's just turn there for a moment. Titus chapter 2. And then in Titus 2, it says in verse 11, Titus 2.11, For the grace of God has appeared, bringing salvation to all men instructing us to deny ungodliness and worldly desires and to live sensibly, righteously, and godly in the present age. And what does it say? Looking for the blessed hope and the appearing of the glory of our great God and Savior, Christ Jesus, who gave himself for us to redeem us from every lawless deed and to purify for himself. Notice that word is, in, is important. And that wording is going to come up again as we look at Isaiah. He is doing it for himself. We must establish this in salvation. You may have heard it before, but I say it to you again. Everything that God does is for his what? His glory and for his honor. He saves us for his glory. He saves us for his honor, that all men would recognize his greatness. And so how do we see the greatness of God? We see the greatness of God when people who are undeserving of salvation, that God himself does what? Provides the means of salvation. And he says, a possession, a people for his own possessions, zealous for good deeds. These things speak and exhort and reprove with all authority. Let no one do what? Disregard you. See, that takes us back to the thought of Isaiah, doesn't it? We're to speak mightily and boldly. So Paul says to Titus, let no one disregard you in these issues. Speak with a sense of authority when it comes to these issues. And what is unfortunate, really, in the church today is that we find more and more preachers who don't speak with authority. Uh, we, the world, uh, unfortunately, is full of wimpy preachers. What's a wimpy preacher? Um, it has nothing to do with has nothing to do with physical stature, because I've seen some guys of small stature that are just they're firebrands, um, and I've seen some guys of 
uh, intimidating stature that are, anyway, uh, <clears throat> that has no substance whatsoever. It means this sense in which I will speak boldly for God. Now, let me, for a moment, be careful because sometimes in our circles we think boldness is coarseness, and it is not. We're still to speak the truth in love, and we speak it with patience, and we speak it even with gentleness, even to those that may contradict. contradict. That's even what Paul said to Timothy. Be patient, even with those that contradict. But we can still be bold when we speak the word of God. So we see here, it is Calvin who said this when we look at the heart of the gospel. He said the sum, God's appearance, he says God's appearance is the sum of our happiness. And he says which solely consists in the presence of God. So I pause for a moment and ask you a question. What is the source of your happiness? I mean, right, what makes you happy? What makes you content? What brings you satisfaction? What generates a sense of gratitude in your heart and in your life? Is it just the reality that I have God and I have, if I have God, I have all things? And we know there's so many perversions out there today that would say, yes, God, however, I need to have whatever it may be. And sometimes I, I get tired of even bringing up these illustrations, but I think we need to keep it in front of us to say there is, in fact, a perversion that is out there that, we want to, that wants to take the gospel and say we cannot be satisfied with God alone. So the question would be, uh, what else should we add? can we add to God? If we have him, we have everything, do we not? Oh, I just thought of something. Go with me to Psalm um, 73. And it's a biblical thought, because that can be dangerous when one's thought of something. The question is, what did you think of? <laughs> and sometimes we think of things, yeah, sometimes you think of things that you just need to keep to yourself. Um, so, um, ASAP, remember, he looks out on the land, uh, there's a sense of jealousy, he sees an evil people in verse 4, uh, their body is fat, they don't have trouble as all men. Um, he is wondering, is this fair? The wicked are chastened. Verse 11, how does God know and is there knowledge with the most high? He says, but what else does he conclude? Um, notice what he says in verse 23. He, he rustles himself back to a spiritual reality. And he says in verse 23, nevertheless, I'm continually with you. You have taken hold of my right hand with your counsel. You will guide and afterward receive me to glory. That's good news, is it not? And he says in verse 25, whom have I in heaven but you? And besides you, I desire nothing on, what does he say? Earth. What is your desire? I mean, what is your desire on earth? What is competing with God? What is your source of contentment? And this is why he goes on to say, my flesh and my heart may fail, but God is the strength of my heart and my portion. How long? Forever, forever. It's God. 
but stop for a moment, going back to the thought of Isaiah 40, we ask ourselves a question. Yes, it is God, but we have to grasp the implication of God's presence. I may simply say, well, um, the presence of God, they would see it come, but the presence wasn't just like a pillar of, of fire. It wasn't just a cloud. The presence is more than that. There are implications that come with being in the presence of God. Just as he said in Titus, Christ is going to come, but when he comes, now we need to deny what ungodliness and wickedness, because now we have a relationship with God. So when he says, here is your God, there are implications to it. Think with me for a moment, even when it comes to the very presence of God and manifestation of God, Moses stood in the presence of God, and that place was considered what? Holy. Isaiah, even in Isaiah 6, in this book, he stood in the very presence of God, and it was considered what? Holy. And Isaiah came to grips with what? I'm amongst a people of unclean lips, and myself, I'm a man of unclean lips. Woe is me. And what did God do in his graciousness? What did he do? He took the coal, and he put it on his lips, and he was cleansed. See, there's implications to the presence of God. Peter stood in the presence of God, and his thinking was, away from me, Lord. I'm a sinner. A sinner. So when it says God is coming, he's in your presence, there are implications that would come with that, which would be, Judah, recognize your sinfulness and my graciousness. Judah, don't go to your old ways again. Judah, see that I'm a faithful God. Judah, live a life of holiness is what he is saying. Here it is, this great warrior savior is going to come, and with it we have to think about what does that mean for our lives, and they had to consider what will this mean for us as people who say we are followers of God. Promise of fulfillment it has been something uh, that has been brewing or growing um, throughout Isaiah. Go with me to Isaiah um, chapter 7. So this sense of anticipation. And Isaiah 7, and it's really, we can't go through it all, but Isaiah 7, um, it says, when it was reported, verse 2, to the house of David, saying, the Arameans have camped in Ephraim, his heart and the hearts of his people shook as the trees of the forest shake with the wind. Intimidation. Then the Lord said to Isaiah, go up now to meet Asaz, you and your son, Sher Jessup, at the end of the conduit of the upper pool in the highway to the fuller's field. And say to them, take care and be what? Calm. Have no fear. Do not be faint-hearted because of these two stubs of smoldering firebrands on account of the fierce anger of Razan and Aram and the sons of Remaliah. So here, encouragement is given. Yes, you're shaken. You're intimidated by the forces against you. But he says, ultimately, don't be that way. Don't fear. Take courage. And then another promise comes. And these sort of ideas that God is, in fact, going to be with his people. Notice verse 10. Then the Lord spoke to Asaph, saying, Ask for a sign for yourself from the Lord your God. Make it as deep as shoal, as high as heaven. But Asaph says, I will not ask, nor will I test the Lord. Then he said, listen now, house of David, 
Is it too slight a thing for you to try the patience of men that you would try the patience of God as well? Therefore, the Lord himself will give you a sign. Behold, a virgin will be with child and bear a son, and you shall his name, what? Emmanuel, which means what? God with us. So this anticipation has been there. Don't fear, I will fight for you. Don't fear, there is one is going to come who will be in your very presence. And of course, when he's in your very presence, it's not simply Christ simply walking amongst men. Christ, as he walked among men, he was doing what? Calling them to repentance. The kingdom of God is what? At hand. I'll give you a sign. And then later on, he talks about the trials that are going to come. Uh, the king of Assyria is going to come, but in the end, God is a faithful God. Because what did he do to the Assyrians? In one moment, the angel killed how many? 185,000. In one moment. Jerusalem, preparing to come to that great city. Um, Shennacherib had destroyed cities on his way to Jerusalem. But God says, enough is enough, stop here. So his track record is complete. Look with me, uh, Isaiah 33. Um, Go there. Isaiah 33 and verse 22. But let's look at verse 1. I'm sorry, verse 21. It says, but there the majestic one, Yahweh, will be for us. A place of rivers and wide canals on which no boat with oars will go and on which no mighty ship will pass. For Yahweh is our judge. Yahweh is our lawgiver. The Lord, or Yahweh, is our king. He will do what? He will save us. He will fight for us. He will save us. Don't fear. So this idea of God coming to their aid is throughout the book and in many other passages as well leading up to this point. So, in fact... The good news of God's presence. Secondly, it's this. Because again, if we go back to Isaiah 40, turn to Isaiah 40, go back there. And what does it say again? Another word sets it off. Behold. Notice what it states. Behold, the Lord God will come with might. The Lord God will come with might. And actually... Uh, you probably see it in your margin if you have any sort of study Bible. It's really, uh, behold, Adonai Yahweh. So Adonai Yahweh, because normally you think, well, Yahweh, that would have been all caps um, for Lord. Uh, you would have thought you would have seen, well, Lord, Lord. But here it's Lord Adonai, um, Adonai, this superior one, this, this sovereign one. This is what Adonai means. And he says, of course, Yahweh, so he is the strong one that will come. He is the one that will come with might. He is the one that will come with power. The uh, Net Bible translates it sovereign Lord. It can be translated powerful one. He is the mighty one will come to your aid. And I won't go there, but if you were to note Isaiah chapter 1, 24, we see it in Isaiah 31, 1 and 15. We see it in Isaiah 28, 16. It's in Isaiah 30, 15. Here's the sovereign God who will fight your battles. And when the net says sovereign one, um, obviously when we think about sovereignty, we mean this absolute ability to do as one pleases, 
because they have the right to do what they please and they can act what they please. Um, Psalm 103.19 says that God's sovereignty rules over all. Sovereignty, uh, God's ability to take even the evil and make it good. Sovereignty, that he rules over the choices and over your life over your life. Sovereignty, God's providence is unfolding every day in your life and there are no circumstances. There's no luck. God has orchestrated everything for your life, which is a wonderful comfort, isn't it? And we, some, I don't know, was it two years ago, I did the series on trusting the trustworthiness of God and we looked at God's sovereignty and it was Spurgeon that said that, you know, God's providence is the pillow on which I can lay my head. And each night you can go to bed with that sense of let me lay my head uh, in the providence of God. You wake up in the morning and you say, let me walk in the providence of God. Because nothing can happen to you that God doesn't allow. Agree with that? And you think about it for a moment. It's always interesting to me when I think about it from the standpoint of warfare even. And I may have mentioned it before, but, um, you know, you think about something like D-Day and the, the absolute manpower that it took to bring that about and landing on the shores of Normandy and you say to yourself, how did anyone get off the beach itself? I mean, think about it. I mean, you're going along and there's your, your comrade next to you and he falls. There's a landing craft behind you and it's hit and it, it blows up and no one even gets off of it. And there's another person that's next to you. You make it all the way to the beach and you're climbing up the hill and he falls right next to you. Why not you? Because God is a what? Sovereign God. And no pillow, uh, no, um, no bomb, no bullet can harm you until God says, that's your moment. That's your moment. You can rest in that. Now, of course, that doesn't mean that you go out and do utterly foolish things. It doesn't. Um, you're not invincible. And sometimes if you go out and do utterly foolish things and it ends your life, guess what? That's God's sovereignty. Yes. We trust in this God. So he says, what else? Notice what he says. Uh, the Lord God will come with might. And we've uh, established that. We are to speak with might, but he comes with might. That is, he is a great God that controls all things. And notice what else he says, with his ruling arm. And what does this mean? We see it in other prophets but it is um, used the most of any other prophet here in Isaiah. In Isaiah, his arm. This is a theme that we see going back to the Exodus. God delivered the people of God from Egypt by his coming to the aid of his people. He does so for his name. You see it in Exodus 13, God's arm delivered the people of God. You'll see it in Deuteronomy 7 and 11 and 26. God's, God's arm delivered the people of God. Now, I want us to go to some places in Isaiah, just to see this theme in Isaiah and, and help us develop it, if you will. Isaiah, uh, let's go all the way back to chapter 30. Chapter 30, verse 30. And notice what it says there. And Yahweh will cause his voice of authority to be heard and the descending of his arm to be seen in fierce anger. And in the flame of a consuming fire and cloudburst, a downpour and hailstones, it says. Look over at 33. 33, then verse 2. Um, 
O Yahweh, be gracious to us. We have waited for you. Be their strength every morning. Our salvation also in the time of distress. He is the one that comes to their aid. Look with me at uh, Isaiah 48. Isaiah 48 and then verse 14. What does it tell us there? Um, Verse 13 would help us. It says, surely my hand founded the earth. And my right hand spread out the heavens. When I call to them, they stand together. Assemble all of you and listen. Who among them has declared these things? Yahweh loves him. He will carry out his good pleasure on Babylon and his arm will be against the Chaldeans. So here it is. It's pronounced here in 48. He says, he's going to come to you. He will deliver you. I will carry out my good pleasure against Babylon. Now think with me for a moment. Here is God's sovereignty. Wait a minute. Hold on a second. How did Babylon come into power? Because God did what? The Assyrians um, had the northern tribes. The Assyrians are threatening um, the southern tribe. God fights for them. But God does what? God raises up Babylon to destroy a nation. Then God will raise up another nation to destroy Babylon. And God will raise up another nation to wipe out the Persians. And then he will raise up another nation to wipe out the Greeks and then the Romans. He is sovereign over the nations. And this is why Isaiah tells us that the nations are just like a drop in the what? In the bucket. My sovereignty rules over all things. Look with me. Um, Isaiah chapter 50, Isaiah 50, and then in verse 2. And especially you see this idea of arm in chapter 50 to 53, arm, the arm of the Lord. And it says in verse um, 3, he says, I clothe the heavens with blackness and make sackcloth their covering. It comes, why? Because my hand has decided to do it. Notice, if you will, 51, Isaiah 51, verse 5. He says, my righteousness is near, my salvation has gone forth, and my arms will judge the peoples, the coastlands will wait for me, and by my arm they will wait expectantly. Go with me to, well, it's in verse 9 as well, but look with me at 52, 52, 10. Notice what he says there. Verse 9 helps us, and it even ties us back to chapter 40. Break forth, shout joyfully together, you waste places of Jerusalem. For the Lord has comforted his people. He has redeemed Jerusalem. Yahweh has bared his, his holy arm in the sight of all the nations, that all the ends of the earth may see the salvation of our God. And this brings us back to what I was saying earlier. Why does God save? So that he would be glorified and honored. Why did God choose this small people? Why did God choose this nation practically the size of New Jersey to be this great people group? Why? So that all would say it is not because of their might. It's not because of their power. It is because of what? My arm that I've done it. And so Jerusalem, whenever they would fight a battle, they would realize, how did we win the battle? It's because of God's And that's why God indicted David when David took the census. And he took the census because in one sense that was to say, look at our mighty army. 
Look what we can do. No, because it is not by a horse and it is not by a chariot. It is by the spirit of the Lord, is it not? And in your life, the same thing is true. We must be careful that we are not relying on our human resources too much. God has given us natural talents and abilities, and we should use them for our glory, but do not lean on them. Does that make sense? I hope so. Look with me here, though. Isaiah 53. Mm. Amen. Isaiah 52 and 53. What is this a picture of? Isaiah 52 and 53. This is a picture of what? The suffering who? And what will the suffering servant do? He will save us. He will come to us. He is the email. Here is God with us, the very presence of God. And what does it say? Verse 1, 53. Who has believed our what? Message. And we're talking about this message that we must believe in. And to whom has the arm of the Lord been revealed? Now that arm can fight for you or against you. It can be revealed and you can see the suffering servant and what he did. Or it can fight against you. Make sure you're on the right side. And if he's fighting for you, no one can stand against you. But if he's against you, no one can help you. His arm does it. His mighty arm. So the good news of God's power. Third is this. The good news of God's promise. Hold. So we go back to Isaiah 40. Behold, the third behold, he says, now, behold, his reward is with him and his recompense before him. So what is this communicating? First, he will come, he will offer a gracious reward, Um, his reward and recompense. Some have looked at this differently. Is the reward um, the people, the exiles coming back, and that's the reward. Um, I just take the position the reward is simply his very presence and all the implications of his presence that he's now going to be with his people again. Um, do me a favor. Someone look up Isaiah 62, 11. Isaiah 62, 11. Isaiah 62, 11. Then also another person in another Bible look up um, Revelation 22, 12. You have 62, 11? Okay, may I borrow your Bible? I just didn't want to go back and forth with it. Um, 62, 11, it says, Indeed, Yahweh has proclaimed to the end of the world, Say to the daughter of Zion, Surely your salvation is what? Coming. Behold, his reward is with him and his work before him. And when it says his work before him, um, the NASB has reward with him, work or recompense. It's this idea that God has done the work. He is the one that would defeat the enemies, and he is repaying himself for his success. Who has Revelation twenty-two twelve? Who's that? Okay. All right, give it to me. Thank you. All right, Revelation twenty-two twelve. And what does it say here? Notice he says, Behold, and notice this great picture of the future. Behold, I am coming. How when is he coming? To render to every man according to what he has done. So the question is now, Christ is coming, a reward is with him. How will you be rewarded? Every man, which, based on what he has done. Um, the sad thing about 
when we consider Revelation is that we as believers will stand before the bema of Christ and there's a reward based on what we've done in the flesh or not. But there will be a great white throne judgment. We will not stand before it because of Christ redeeming us. But some will stand before that great white throne. And this warrior God, this warrior God will have his vengeance. Like he had his vengeance on Babylon, which we'll see later. He says, you, you mistreated the old and the children. You were not compassionate on them. So he has his vengeance on Babylon. But he's going to have his vengeance on people and it will last forever. Make sure that you know this shepherd. Let me finish up here. Go back to Isaiah 40. He will offer gracious care. He will offer gracious care. Notice how he will come. Notice what it says in verse 11. Like a shepherd, he will tend his flock, gather his lambs, and gently lead them. Tend his flock. Really, the word is saying he will, um, he will feed them. He will feed them. He will feed them. So he's going to come watchfully for his people. He will tend them. Every word that comes from his mouth, you can dine on it. What else does it say about him and how he will care for his people? He will intimately care for his people. Intimately care because it says what? He will gather the lambs and carry them in his bosom. Think about this picture. Now, remember before, this same arm is the one that's going to fight against Babylon as a warrior. But with the same arms, he does what? That's amazing. Um, you know, my, you saw my little grandson, or some of you did. You saw pictures of me with him. And, you know, I pick him up gently, put him right here. We walk around. I was yesterday, they were over, and we, he loves outdoors. He's just so, such an inquisitive little boy. Outdoors, and, and I'm in the, um, in the yard with him. I'm just on the ground, rolling around with him, and he's picking up sticks and putting them in his mouth. And I'm stopping him from putting chewing on leaves and pick him up again and bring him in. Now, last night I was up late and um, I fell asleep in the living, in the family room. And um, it was about 3.30 in the morning. I hear garage door, garage door. And I'm thinking, uh-oh. And really I changed modes. I got up and I went to the door and I looked in and I was ready to... Somebody decided they needed to get something out of the refrigerator at 3.30 in the morning. Um, I changed modes. I went from the tender arm that just picks up and plays and pats and kisses on the nose to punching the nose. <laughs> yeah, protector. God is that way, amen. He is a shepherd. And what does a shepherd do when wolves come? No, you, you protect the sheep, do you not? And what did he do to Babylon? He said, it is enough. You have missed people. So what happens? The Persians come and say, that's enough, Babylon. But what does he also do? He comes like a shepherd. And he says, I will, what? let me just read it again. Like a shepherd, he will tend his flock. He will feed them. In his arm, he will gather the lambs and carry them in his bosom. And he will gently lead the nursing youth.
So he does it intimately, but he also does it purposefully. I'm guiding you. I'm giving you direction. So what's our final thought today? Ultimately, it's this. We need to know him and make him known, right? Let people know he is a tender shepherd. And the scripture tells us that uh, he came, Christ said, I came that you may have life and have it what? Abundantly, abundantly. But he also will come back as a warrior. And the question is, on whose side will you be? And if you're on his side now, are you going to know him and get yourself on a mountain and speak mightily and don't fear and let other people know that Yahweh is the only answer for the questions of life. Yahweh is the only answer for forgiving you of your sins. That's our mission. Father, thank you um, for who you are, your grace and goodness that you show us. And what a great shepherd you are. Although a great warrior, you are a tender watcher of souls. We thank you for that in Christ's name. Amen.